Welcome to Walking with Moses, where we walk through the first five books of the Bible from two unique perspectives. My name is Dylan White, and I come from a Messianic Jewish background. And my name is Jordan Gann, and I come from an Evangelical Christian background. Now, today is March 15th, 2022, or the 12th day of Adar II in the year 5782. And today we're going to be covering Leviticus chapter 7, verse 11 through 38. These are the regulations for the fellowship offering anyone may present to the Lord. If they offer it as an expression of thankfulness, then along with this thanks offering, they are to offer thick loaves made without yeast and with olive oil mixed in, thin loaves made without yeast and brushed with oil, and thick loaves of the finest flour, well kneaded and with oil mixed in. Along with their fellowship offering of thanksgiving, they are to present an offering of thick loaves of bread made with yeast. They are to bring one of each kind as an offering, a contribution to the Lord. It belongs to the priest who splashes the blood of the fellowship offering against the altar. The meat of their fellowship offering of thanksgiving must be eaten on the day it is offered. They must leave none of it till morning. If, however, the offering is the result of a vow or is a freewill offering, the sacrifice shall be eaten on the day they offer it, but anything left over may be eaten on the next day. Any meat of the sacrifice left over till the third day must be burned up. If any meat of the fellowship offering is eaten on the third day, the one who offered it will not be accepted. It will not be reckoned to their credit, for it has become impure. The person who eats any of it will be held responsible. Meat that touches anything ceremonially unclean must not be eaten. It must be burned up. For other meat, anyone ceremonially clean may eat it. But if anyone who is unclean eats any meat of the fellowship offering belonging to the Lord, they must be cut off from their people. Anyone who touches something unclean, whether human uncleanliness or an unclean animal or any unclean each creature that moves along the ground and then eats any of the meat of the fellowship offering belonging to the Lord must be cut off from their people. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, Do not eat any of the fat of cattle, sheep, or goats. The fat of an animal found dead or torn by wild animals may be used for any other purpose, but you must not eat it. Anyone who eats the fat of an animal from which the food offering may be presented to the Lord must be cut off from their people. And wherever you live, you must not eat the blood of any bird or animal. Anyone who eats blood must be cut off from their people. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, Anyone who brings a fellowship offering to the Lord is to bring part of it as their sacrifice to the Lord. With their own hands, they are to present the food offering to the Lord. They are to bring the fat together with the breast and wave the breast before the Lord as a wave offering. The priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast belongs to Aaron and his sons. You are to give the right thigh of your fellowship offering to the priest as contribution. The son of Aaron, who offers the blood and the fat of the fellowship offering, shall have the right thigh as his share. From the fellowship offering of the Israelites, I have taken the breast that is waved and the thigh that is presented, and have given them to Aaron the priest and his sons as their perpetual share from the Israelites. This is the portion of the food offering presented to the Lord that were allotted to Aaron and his sons on the day they were presented to serve the Lord as priests. On the day they were anointed, the Lord commanded that the Israelites give this to them as their perpetual share for generations to come. These then are the regulations for the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, the ordination offering, and the fellowship offering, which the Lord gave to Moses at Mount Sinai in the desert of Sinai on the day he commanded the Israelites to bring their offerings to the Lord. All right, so it's quite a large section, and it does deal with several topics surrounding the peace offering, command not to eat fat and blood, and the final section that deals with the wave offering and the elevation offering. 
So let's just jump into the obvious. That way you can kind of explain some stuff to me. Yeah, absolutely. So it says in verse 11, and this is the law of the peace offering, which he shall bring to the Lord. Now we've already discussed the peace offering or the fellowship offering as some Bibles may translate it. It's the Hebrew word shlamim, which comes from the root word shalom, which is the idea of peace. We're establishing peace with God and we're also giving everybody a peace. So it qualifies this peace offering as a thanksgiving offering. Now, a thanksgiving offering is a type of shamim, a type of fellowship offering that is brought specifically to thank God for miraculous deliverances and wondrous protections, like recovering from an illness or surviving a long journey or being released from prison. Whenever a person would vow to bring a peace offering due to one of these circumstances, it was referred to as a shalame toda, as a thanksgiving peace offering, which then requires this bread and and the stringencies of eating it before the following morning in the temple courtyard. So in reference to this bread, it's very specific. We see four distinct types, as well as the use of leavened bread with unleavened bread, which is fairly rare among the sacrifices as we've read so far. Right. Usually you don't use yeast unless it is for this, as well as for the offering given at Shavuot or Pentecost. So there are four types of loaves presented here, and they're a mixture of this leaven and unleavened bread, uh, as you mentioned already. So first of all, you have the unleavened loaves mixed with oil, the unleavened wafers anointed with oil, scalded flour mixed with oil, that is, it was cooked by having boiling water poured out on top of it, and leavened loaves. And each of these types consisted of 10 loaves, so you have 40 total. So the question is why the mixture? right? You have 40 loaves of this bread. It's a mixture of leaven and unleavened loaves. And it really goes back to the idea of the Thanksgiving offering. This Thanksgiving offering really comes from the desire and the need to publicize thankfulness and recount to others the obvious miracles that God has performed to deliver us from harm. When we experience a fantastic miracle, it really puts the rest of our lives under a microscope. If God has delivered me in this very obvious and open way, how many other times has he delivered me? And maybe a not so obvious way. You know, the hidden natural miracles of our everyday life. The unleavened bread is a bread of miracles. It's connected to Passover when we experience the 10 plagues and the miraculous deliverance from the Egyptians. Meanwhile, the leavened bread is a representation of the bread that we eat every single day. It's connected to the everyday miracles that God performs to deliver us that we have no idea that have happened. Bringing both of these loaves we're saying to God, thank you for both the overt, obvious miracles that have happened in our life, as well as those which are hidden miracles, things that we don't usually pay attention to. So one of the things that we learn from this, just on a very practical level, is that Thanksgiving meals and occasions should not be one-time events, but we have to live in a mode of Thanksgiving. Nowhere is this more obvious than in the Messianic age. The temple system will be restored, the sacrifices will be offered up again, but only the communal sacrifices will resume as normal. When it comes to personal sacrifices, the only ones that will remain are Thanksgiving offerings. These ones we're reading about right here. Right, well, and that would make sense. The need for a sin offering or guilt offering in an age where sin and guilt no longer serve a role would be kind of pointless. And this teaches us that we're going to be in a mode of complete and total Thanksgiving at all times. I think the best way that you could prepare for that is to act as if it is now. Now, obviously there's still imperfection in the world, there's still sin, there's still guilt, there's still reasons for repentance. However, if the world we're looking forward to is without those things, we should live our lives, or at least try to live our lives in such a way 
that we would be fitting for that world. So verse 14 says, and he shall bring from it, that is out of these 40 loaves of bread, one out of each offering. So four loaves total as a separation for the Lord, the priest who dashes the blood of the peace offering, it shall be his. Verse 15 says, and the flesh of his Thanksgiving peace offering shall be eaten on the day it's offered up. He shall not leave any of it over until the morning. So one loaf out of each kind was separated as a taruma, as a gift for the priest who was assisting in the service. The other 36 loaves was eaten by the person who brought it, their family members, and those who were participating in this Thanksgiving meal. And because it was called a peace offering, uh, we learn here that the same laws apply to its sacrificial portions and its service. Uh, it's to be eaten before sunrise. Okay, so verse 16 through 17, it says, But if his sacrifice is a vow or a voluntary donation, on the day he offers up his sacrifice, it may be eaten. And on the next day, whatever is left over from the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burnt in fire. So verse 16 through 17 comes to give us a separate type of peace offering, one that's not being brought for Thanksgiving for a miracle but rather as a vow or a voluntary donation. And as a result, it doesn't require any bread and it may be eaten within two days. That is the day you offer it and the next day. However, whatever's left on the third day has to be burned in fire. Verse 18 says, and if any of the flesh of his peace offering is to be eaten on the third day, it will not be accepted. It shall not count for the one who offers it, rather it shall be rejected. And the person who eats of it shall bear his sin. Now, if you're really paying attention to the verse, we learn again that intention and thought is counted as the deed. See, the verse clearly states that the sacrifice becomes invalid when he offers it if the flesh of his peace offering is to be eaten on the third day, meaning that he had the animal slaughtered with the full intention of eating it outside of its prescribed time window. Even if you were to eat it within that time window after the fact, it won't be accepted. He will still bear his sin and it's considered to be completely and totally invalid. And this is a category of invalidation known in Hebrew as pigol. Our intentions matter as well as our service before God, that if we don't go in with the proper intentions, then we invalidate our service. Yeah, I mean, if you were to rename the book of Leviticus, you could rename it the book of intentions. It's a guideline for the people bringing the sacrifice. It's a guideline for the priest. And it's all about doing it within a very narrow window of legality and time to keep us from having too many options to do whatever we want, get towards what God wants and to humble us mm -hmm. and to do it with the right heart. And for people who may not think that intention matters as much, Jesus talks about intention in Matthew chapter five, where he says, if you look at a woman and lust after her in your heart, you've committed adultery already, right? You haven't committed the action, but you thought it, you had the intention to lust after her. And as a result of which that was counted as the deed. In the same way, if you had the intention to give charity, but yet you weren't given the opportunity, maybe you were withheld for some reason, the intention is counted as the deed. So in both ways, you can either receive the consequences for intentions or the benefits. Verse 19, it says, And the flesh that touches anything unclean shall not be eaten, it shall be burned in fire. But regarding the flesh, anyone who is clean may eat the flesh. Now, if the flesh of the holy peace offerings here, uh, not referring to the improper intention, the pigol we've just talked about, uh, but if this peace offering touches anything unclean, it becomes invalid and has to be burnt. Those that are tahor, or those who are ritually clean, uh, have not come into contact with sources of tumah or impurity. Uh, they're permitted to eat it throughout the entire city of Jerusalem. 
Verse 20 through 21 says, A person who eats the flesh of a peace offering of the Lord, while his uncleanness is upon him, that soul shall be cut off from its people. And a person who touches anything unclean, whether uncleanness from a human or an unclean animal, that is its carcass, or any unclean carcass of an abominable creature, and then eats of the flesh of a peace offering to the Lord, that soul shall be cut off from its people. Whereas the clean person that eats an unclean or invalid sacrifice has merely committed a sin, an error, a misstep. The unclean person that eats a pure and valid peace offering is spiritually excised, karet, by the hand of heaven, destined to die young and childless. So this could apply even in a less extreme circumstance. Maybe people show up on a Sunday or show up at shul on, on Shabbat, on Sabbath, and yet they have no desire to connect to God. They have no desire to connect with people. They're just there to fulfill an obligation. Um, this in and of itself is a spiritually impure person trying to engage in holy work. It's not going to be acceptable. The intention is everything. Verse 22 through 27 says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, You shall not eat any fat of an ox, a sheep, or a goat. The fat of carrion and the fat of an animal with a fatal disease or injury may be used for any work, but you shall not eat it. For anyone who eats fat of animals from which sacrifices are brought as fire offerings to the Lord, the soul who eats it shall be cut off from its people. And you shall not eat any blood in any of your dwelling places, whether from birds or from animals. And any person who eats any blood, that soul shall be cut off from its people. Summary of that. Fat, fat, don't eat it. Blood, same thing. Don't eat it. That blood is life. It belongs to God. Now, you can use fat of a, a, a sacrificial potential animal for other things. Fat is very useful. It's leather tanning, uh, lubricants, rust prohibitives. Fat in the old world was worth its weight in gold, but don't consume it because it belongs to God. So verse 23 tells us generally not to eat the fat of any of the sacrificial cattle or the herding animals, the ox, sheep, goat. Uh, you get to verse 24 and it says, don't eat the fat of the carrion and the fat of an animal with a fatal disease or injury. This is what we refer to in Hebrew as trepha. And then it goes on to say that we're also not to eat blood. It does qualify this in verse 26 by saying from birds or from animals, meaning that from anything that we offer a sacrifice to God, we're not to eat the blood. Now, the exception to this is fish and locusts. So throughout the Torah, we're told several times, don't eat blood. Matter of fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 23, it even goes so far as to say, be strong not to eat it. Now, let me ask you, is it appetizing to think about just chugging down a gallon of cattle blood? Oh, no, not at all. Yeah, it sounds disgusting, right? But at the same time, the Torah is very adamant that we don't do it. Now, rather than think that maybe the draw towards blood was greater back then, or maybe that this is just a command to avoid idolatrous practice, that doesn't necessarily answer the question of why Deuteronomy is so specific to say, be strong as not to eat it, as if you're drawn to it and you have to fight an urge. A person should look at blood as something that he would very much like to consume, you know, but is refraining from doing so only because the Torah told him to. This kind of attitude will help a person get into a routine of basing their every action on what God commands and not what their natural intellect is telling them to do. And this habit then will enable us to overcome even more difficult hurdles for sins that we're actually tempted to commit. And here it says to do it in all of your dwellings. This is not bound by time. It's not bound by space. Everywhere we are, we need to make sure that we are not considering a single commandment to be insignificant, but that we strengthen ourselves to perform them so that when the actual temptations come, we can resist them. 
So verse 28, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, Anyone who brings his peace offering to the Lord shall bring his sacrifice to the Lord from his peace offering. His own hands shall bring the fire offerings of the Lord, the fat on the breast, he shall bring it, the breast to wave it as a waving before the Lord. And the priest shall cause the fat to go up in smoke on the altar, and the breast shall belong to Aaron and his sons. And you shall give the right thigh as an elevation offering to the priest from your peace offering. Any one of the sons of Aaron who offer up the blood of the peace offering and the fat he shall give the right thigh as a portion. For I have taken the breast of the waving and the thigh of the elevation from the children of Israel from their peace offerings, and I have given them to Aaron the priest and to his sons as an eternal statute from the children of Israel. And this is the grant for Aaron's anointment and his son's anointment from the fire offerings of the Lord on the day that he brought them near to the priests for the Lord, which the Lord commanded to give them on the day that he anointed them from the children of Israel. This is an eternal statute for their generations. And this is the law for the burnt offering, for the meal offering, for the sin offering, and for the guilt offering, and for the investors, that is the day of initiation into the priests, and for the peace offering which the Lord commanded Moses on Mount Sinai on the day he commanded the children of Israel to offer up their sacrifices to the Lord in the Sinai desert. So for the peace offering, he, he brings it from the slaughtering area. He then places the fat on the breast. But when the priest takes it to wave it, the breast portion is then placed above the fat. And after the waving, which in Hebrew is called tenufa, uh, he gives it to the priest to burn it. So there are about three priests who are involved in this whole process. The breast portion goes to the priests for food after the fat has been burnt up. And the right thigh is used for the elevation offering, called in Hebrew teruma. And the priest that offers the blood and fat receives it as his portion. Now, tenufa is a forward and backward motion as he's waving it, and teruma is upward and downward, which the priest would perform before being allowed those specific portions. Now, all of this, as well as the other sacrifices and offerings that are being given, as well as their service, as we summarized here at the end, are to be conducted by the priests in Jerusalem at the Holy Temple, and all of them were received from God at Mount Sinai, meaning they're all the will and wisdom of God. So I think this is a kind of a picture here of the effort and work that the leaders within our faith groups, they have to put in a lot of work to lead us. There's a lot of stuff they have to keep up with. There's a lot of rules. There's a lot of guidelines. There's a lot of ways in which they can misstep and do bad as a leader. So when they do good and they put in the effort and they learn and they lead, they get to keep a piece of what we offer. We are to take care of them. Just like you pay your deacons or you pay your pastor or you, you, know, you pay your worship leaders. Those people are putting in a lot of effort to bring a service that brings you closer to God. So it's fair and expected that they should get a portion back. And this is what Paul referred to when he said that a worker is worthy of his wages. That is, for those who are acting in the service of a priest, who are drawing the people near to God, their portion is this breast and thigh. Having gone through this and read it and kind of digested it a little bit, wrap it all up nice for me. Give me a bow. Give me some type of application that you could take out into the world. First of all, we need to live in a mode of thanksgiving. We need to create the conditions now that we want to see in the world in the future. We need to make sure that we have the right intentions when serving God so that our sacrifices are not invalidated. And from the commandment of the blood, we learn that we need to not treat a single command as being insignificant, but as training wheels, helping us to be able to get to the point where we can resist even the strongest of temptations. So join us again tomorrow for another section of Walking with Moses.